I'll start off today with a bit of good news for myself. I was just getting ready to do this little chat and I had an email and a notification come through on my phone that the Environment Agency and Derbyshire County Council have removed the hands off the flow notice which means we can extract water from the river to top up the canal. It'll take a couple of days to top up but on Saturday we can run the first trip. It's a bit quicker than we thought. We've had some rain but we didn't think there was enough for it to start flowing into the canal but it appears that there is. So we can start on Saturday July the 30th and start moving trip boats around. I think the first one we're doing is a Stavely town trip which is a six hour cruise up to Stavely and back from Tapton Lock. I hadn't done one of those before, I did the last one just for the sake of seeing where it went and what the other locks were like that I hadn't been through previously. I feel confident what I'm doing going up there now. It's good news because every trip is revenue for the Canal Trust. On the other hand, we had that little bit of rain last week which has boosted the flow a little bit on the river but it's still not up to the sort of height it should be. So at any time during the rest of the summer the hands off the flow notice could go back and we could be shut down again. So we just keep persevering for as long as we can to try and get some trips in and get some revenue in. I should be on trip manager later and put myself down for some of the trips as I'm going to be available for. We volunteer for it, we don't get paid for it, but it's something that we enjoy doing and something that is good for the community. I suppose we're in full flow now with game fairs and such like. I think it's the what used to be the Country Landowners Association game fair next weekend as well. I forget what they call it now, but with the political correctness and whatnot, they don't call them game fairs now, they're country shows and that sort of expression. Still the same idea, still got the shooting stands and the stands for gun dog training and gun dog exhibitions, fishing tackle and that sort of thing, information about deers, deer stalking, how to cook different things that are caught. I enjoy it, I like those. I'm a country lad, that's what I grew up with. I've said before that we used to help out at Oriwa's show, putting it up, taking it down, being a steward for the day, putting the show jumps up when they'd been knocked down by the horses, working in the ring. So yes, I've been doing that since a, quite an early age really.
Just at the moment, though, I'm reading a, a book that one of the old school teachers from Oribus wrote in the 1980s about the history of Oribus and where he talks about the ceremony of the flitch of bacon at Witchner, where you could prove if you'd lived in harmony for a year and a day, you could go and claim this side of bacon that was hanging up inside Witchner Hall. There's no records as such, or no records of anybody ever having claimed it. But for many, many years, there was always a flitch of bacon. <laughs> Not the same one, I don't think. But there was always a flitch of bacon in the hallway. Waiting to be claimed by anybody that could prove, with witnesses, that they were eligible for this flitch. I know in later years, when the hall was still sort of privately owned, they had a wooden replica of a side of bacon made, and that used to hang where the original flitch used to hang. It's since become a, a hotel come holiday place come something else now, and I don't know whether they still have the flitch hanging there. I know I've been in there, we went for a meal and I said if I've got the opportunity I'm going to look round inside the hall. Yet again it's one of those places where I delivered Asians but never got inside the place. So I had a look round and they had still got the big old fireplace and all the stuff that used to be in the entrance hall to the main hall and they'd got a reference to the Flitcher Bacon but I don't think they'd got a a replica or anything like that still hanging there. I know years ago there used to be an inn called the Flitcher Bacon that used to be on the outskirts of Wichner and that in later years was replaced by another inn that was called the Flitcher Bacon alongside the A38 and in the book he refers to this as Within living memory, there used to be one on the A38 that disappeared and was demolished when the dual carriageway was built to improve the A38. And I thought, within living memory. And that was written in the 1980s. It's now the 2020s and I can remember the flitch of bacon at the side of the A38 used to go past it on the bus when we went into Burton for shopping. Disappeared a little bit before the Paul Pry that used to be across the road from where I used to live. That was another pub on the corner that was in the way of progress and was demolished to put the extra carriageway in to make the A38 a dual carriageway. The poor Pry Inn and the two houses on the end of our row were knocked down. Make space for this extra carriageway. <laughs> Since then they've put another carriageway in. The old original A38 is now the service road for the houses on the outskirts of Oribus. And then there are two new carriageways to take the A38. So although they knocked the end two houses down to put one carriageway in, there's another carriageway been put down, but they haven't knocked any more houses down. 
they've just put the road way closer to the houses. That was when they built the big flyover outside what is now the British Legion headquarters, what in my younger days was the Tree Cafe, transport cafe on the corner there. Used to be on the corner of Wellfield Road and the A38. Now there's a flyover and sort of an old river surround bypass. It doesn't take you into the village itself now like it used to. I can still wander around and see what used to be there, but the little old crossing, railway crossing that used to be there with the little crossing keeper's house and a little hut next to the gates where the crossing keeper or relief crossing keeper used to sit waiting for the trains to come to open and shut the gates to traffic or trains. It used to be our Sunday morning walk round there. Down Croxall Road, turn right up White Mahay Lane and then turn round right again down the farmer's track and come out at, I think it was called Ridget's Crossing, that first one. There was two or three as you went towards Litchfield. There was Ridget's Crossing, Roddich Lane, Brook Hay, Fine Lane. All little crossings with a crossing keeper to open and shut the gates. As time went on, they, they became automatic. There were barriers that went up and down automatically as the train was approaching. Triggered off as the train was going along. <laughs> I always remember one night I was out and about somewhere where I shouldn't have been. And I ended up at Brookay Crossing just after they converted it to barriers. And the, the barriers came down and they were only half barriers, they only covered half of the road. And the barriers came down, a train went past and the barriers didn't lift. So I said to the people with me, it's all right, must be another train coming in the other direction. Give it a few minutes, they'll be okay. Anyway, we sat there for quite a while and some cars pulled up behind us and they were waiting. There were some the other side and they were waiting. And I know you shouldn't do it and I knew I'm not going to do it. And that is zigzag around the barriers to get across because we wanted to get somewhere and turning round and going the long way round was going to add quite a few minutes to our journey and we wanted to get something done. So I thought, there's always a telephone by these where you can phone the signalman. So I thought, I'll go and ask what's happening. Ask if there's nothing about, can, can we go across the crossing? Now, as I've got older, I realised that no way could the signalman have said, yes, you can go across the crossing. He would have said, if the barriers are down, the barriers are down. Even if I know there's no trains about, I can't tell you to zigzag around them. But at that time, what would it be? 
about 19. With a swagger, I thought, I know what to do, I'll phone up. What I wasn't thinking at the time was I grabbed the telephone and I phoned up and the local signalman answered it. And within a very few seconds of this person answering the phone, I realised I was out in the back lanes between Fradley and Litchfield reasonably late at night and the guy that answered the phone in the signal box was me dad. Now if I'd have put the phone down, I think it'd have clicked as it was me. But I very quickly tried desperately to disguise my voice a bit and carry on the conversation. It must have worked because I was asking him about what was happening and he said, why are you the police? Can you control things? No, I'm just a stranded motorist that thinks he knows what we can do. Any road, as I now know, we, he couldn't possibly tell me to drive across the thing, so we all turned round and went back and, you know, this was the problem, though, as this crossing was jammed, what were the other crossings going to be like? Could we get over the others? We did, we, we managed to get round it all and finish the job we'd started. Nothing was ever mentioned again by my dad, so I thought, well, I got away with that one then. <laughs> hey, he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have said too much. He'd have only said, what the hell were you doing out there at that time of night? Hey, I wasn't a bad and I didn't, uh, I didn't get up to mischief, but this was just something as, uh, something as we were up to that we shouldn't have been there. That's a, that's a, that's the simple answer. My mum and dad thought I was somewhere else. I wasn't doing anything illegal. It was just as we were uh, we were doing something. But we got away with that one. I used to cruise around that area quite a bit, just for looking for different things to do, different places to be. Even in those days, we used to go for walks through the countryside, having a look at what was around. What animals were about, what livestock were about, what farmers were doing what with which animals. Gate leaning was one of my specialities in those days. The old thing where you lean on the top rail of a five-barred gate, pick your foot up and put it on the bottom rail and just lean there and watch the countryside. Or if there's somebody with you, lean there and chatter away. Idling your time away, really, I suppose, but that's what we did. As I say, in those days, young as I was, I could gate lean for England. Other days I'd meet up with old schoolmates somewhere in either in Litchfield or the outskirts of Litchfield. I know some of them had sorted out an old butcher's van as they'd acquired and they were converting it into a, a camper van. 
Their idea was they were going to take this van across Europe. I'll give them the due. They were doing all the alterations themselves, all the fitting out, putting all the different things in as they'd need to convert it to a camper van. And bless them, they wrote letter after letter after letter after letter to different companies, different addresses, different people trying to get some form of sponsorship or endorsement for what they were trying to do. They were trying desperately to get across Europe. They wrote to something like Smith's watches and clocks, shoes and those sort of people to try and get free watches, free walking boots, all sorts of different companies, places where they could get maps, compasses, foodstuffs, tins of food and that sort of thing. I know I spent some time with them going through all these letters and going through all the replies and responses and I was amazed how many letters they had written. And I was probably more amazed by how many replies they'd got. Some with offers of help, some with very polite declining to help. But in the end, I, I helped them out a little bit with what they were doing. I mean, they were, it was, they were all scouts and doing it as a, a venture scout project. But they weren't travelling as scouts on the days. They were scouts as were setting it up. But it's a bit like things that I did. Scouting couldn't do youth hostels in those days anyway. I don't know what the rules are now. So when I took some lads hiking for a few days and we wanted to use youth hostels, although we went as a group that were scouts, we went as a private group to the youth hostel for what we were doing. While we were actually hiking and, and doing the job, we were scouts, but overnight stays, we were individuals. I can say it now because I'm talking about, good grief, nearly 50 years ago, 40 odd years ago. I don't think they're going to come after me now for breaking the rules. But that was how we did it and that's how they were going to do it. They did it as a scout project, but when they actually got it all set up and ready to go, they did it as individuals. Mainly for insurance purposes, I think that's what it was all about. They got their own insurance and their own financing for that. Anyway, I met up with them a time or two in different pubs around the, the area, discussed what they were doing and giving them a bit of both encouragement and a little bit of practical help. Anyway, the big day came and off they went, chugging across Europe. There wasn't the internet and there wasn't emails and that sort of thing then. There wasn't even mobile phones. We relied on a finding a phone box and trying to get in touch with people or sending written postcards and putting them in the post box. They'd got a couple of phone numbers that they phoned to keep everybody informed and then 
those people let everybody else know what was happening. So we sort of charted their progress across and I think they got as far as Poland. As I say, 40 odd years ago now, I think it was Poland they got to. I've got Poland and Hungary in my head, but I think it was Poland. I don't think they got as far as Hungary. Anyway, the message came back, the engine had blown up. They weren't going to go any further. So I think they all, I think they came back by train in the end. But they enjoyed themselves and that's what it was all about. They had a go at it. They were determined that was their project and they were going to do it. Good luck to them. That was me. One of the pubs I got familiar with in later years was the Fountain Inn. There was already a a good local league football team played out of the Greyhound Inn, which ironically was just down the road from the uh, from the grammar school where I was educated. But they got an excellent football team. There were some of the people that came through the ranks of the Greyhound Inn, went on to play amateur international and become very good amateur footballers. So we decided we'd join the local league. We played quite a few friendlies for a couple of years against different clubs, different teams. Different teams that either played on a Saturday or played on a Sunday morning. It was funny because we were, we were trying to become a regular team to be able to join the league and playing friendlies and a lot of the people that we played against were turning up on Sunday afternoon when we could get a pitch free and their boots were still wet and dirty from playing for their league team in the morning. But we did okay, so we decided we'd join the league. And we joined as Litchfield District Council FC. The ball covers who were in the team were employed We're employed, sorry, there was a bit of a blip on the machine then. The majority of us who's played for the team were employed at the district council. And the guy who organised it all decided he liked the Northern Ireland strip of the time. So we turned out in white shorts, green shirts with white collar and cuffs and green socks with white tops. It did actually look quite smart, but as a Aston Villa supporter, I'd have preferred claret and blue, but I was in the minority. So we, we entered the league as Litchfield District Council. We didn't do too badly. We didn't do too good either. But then we decided we'd like to do something different as a name. So we went round and found a pub that hadn't got a team and we became the Litchfield Fountain FC. It used to be up the top end of Beacon Street, I think, if I remember rightly, the Fountain Pub. Whether it's still there or not, I don't know. It used to be up near where the foundry was up there. But we did okay. We, we got a, 
a lottery type thing running sold lottery tickets to get a bit of funding for the club we got footballs by selling packets of birthday cards and Christmas cards for every so many packets we bought we got a free football so we'd 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 sell these packets of cards and send the money off and they'd send us a football and so we went on with how we did things we had some interesting matches I've talked before about having to go into the prison to play matches different other places where we went different stadiums where we played we only got that in the cup because most of the clubs just played on a the parks pitch that they rented for the game. Occasionally there'd be a, a works team as they'd have a pitch in their works area. And then occasionally in a, a cup match we'd be drawn against a, a higher ranked club and we'd be playing in a proper little stadium. In a way I suppose I'd left it a bit late to start playing football like that. I should have done it sooner and improved my skills in my late teens. As it was, I'd started off in my twenties. And then I broke my leg and had a season out completely. So I was sort of 23, 24 before I was really getting involved. I would have started sooner, but at that time, all of us only played on a Saturday, on a Saturday. I think it was Saturday afternoon actually, not Saturday morning. I think it was the old three o'clock kickoff thing. And uh, I would have liked to have played. But when I was sort of 15, 16, I'd started working at the at Barker's shop. And I got most of my money from working on Saturdays because I was there all day. If there'd have been a Sunday league, I'd have been in it straight away no problems but they only played on a Saturday now I'll give the manager his due he'd seen me playing in a couple of charity matches lads and dads versus this the the, the, the the scouts we played two or three charity games where the scouts took on the dads or the scouts took on a a more senior team for charities sponsor us for every goal we score now, the first charity match I played in, I scored three goals. The second one, I scored a couple of goals. The third one, they put me in defence instead and we didn't concede a goal. So every so often during the course of the season, the manager of the team, who was a granddad of a lad I was at school with used to come into the shop and try and talk me into playing for the football team he said uh, the first time he saw me he said I was a very good prospect and he could see a future for me if I'd sign on I would have loved to have done but getting kicked about a football pitch for nothing or working in a shop for <laughs> the grand sum of five shillings an hour 
there wasn't a contest in those days. I was sort of 16, 17, saving up for a car, trying to get as much money as I could to do different things. And five shilling an hour wasn't bad. Not when you consider the second-hand cars that we were looking at were only about 250 quid for a reasonable car. So, yeah, what's five shilling an hour? A pound for every four hours I worked. So a Saturday was worth two pounds to me. And when you consider that in those days, petrol was about three shillings a gallon. That's how it proved. That's how it, that's how it was. But that was in the past, things have gone. But I have good memories of what we got up to, where we were, what we did. And one or two lucky escapes as well. <laughs> but I may have started late, but I'm always grateful for the football I played, for the people I met, and the knowledge I picked up about the game been able to pass some of that on to my son to try and help him with his game and I must say as an actual player my son turned out to be a better player than I was certainly as an attacking forward he got a bit more skill than I had before I broke my leg I could score goals in the old-fashioned way just a guy has blundered his way through, got into the penalty box and by hook or by crook put some part of his body on the ball and put it in the net. I could score goals. I got quite a hard shot on me. But I hadn't got the skills to dribble through the defence and put the passes and the rest of the stuff together that my lad did. Having said that, after I broke leg I lost some of my speed and agility and the I played in defence regular and I became quite a good stopper. So in a way it helped me, I became a different sort of player. And I think I played better as a, an old-fashioned centre-half or... centre-back than I did as a forward. Anyway, that's me half hour up, so I'll talk to you again next time. I enjoy doing these chats, I just hope I'm keeping some interest for everybody that listens. That is, if anybody is listening. I hope so. Ta-da for now. <laughs>